Today is April the 27th, 2022. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is www.pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. That's www.prn.live. That's L-I-V-E, prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. I'm eagerly looking forward to returning into the studio for live calls from you, the listening audience. In the meantime, you can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. The 46th Annual Trenton Computer Festival was held Saturday, March 19th. It was a free virtual online event on tcf-nj.org. The theme of the festival was Using Technology to Disrupt Environmental Change. There were over 50 talks on 10 concurrent tracks. And if you miss some of the talks because they were concurrent, all the sessions were recorded. They are now available and free for download at tcf-nj.org and the main page has hyperlinks that will direct you to the portal site. Taiwan Semiconductor Hiring Woes in the United States Bringing manufacturing back to the United States is easier said than done. The news back in August of last year was that Taiwan Semiconductor Company was chartering a container ship to move pieces of equipment to its new factory in Arizona. The move heralded a new era of foreign investment in the United States. Now it is reported that Taiwan Semiconductor Arizona Fab has hiring woes in the United States. You may be wondering why Taiwan Semiconductor isn't hiring to these lower-end technical positions in the United States as the requirements are so low. After pondering over some of its job ads aimed at U.S. residents, it becomes apparent that the company's requirements of a 6-12 to month training period in Taiwan would not appeal to many people. However, some jobs with more strenuous requirements like an engineering degree, still ask successful applicants to travel to Taiwan for extended training periods. A manufacturing associate position just asks for a diploma from finishing high school and preferably some work experience in a team environment, something you could claim from a school project or a summer job. Ideally, the applicant would have a love of technical hobbies and would aspire to better the world through mindful business practices that focus on key sustainability goals, ethical management, and helping the underprivileged. These entry-level positions still needed active passport holders to go to Taiwan for training. The struggle to find and retain talent is a well-established problem for most major technology companies. Unfortunately, Taiwan Semiconductor, with its ambitious recent, current, and near-future expansion plans, is one of the worst affected by this personnel crunch. Those with just a high school diploma can snag a Taiwan Semiconductor factory technician job in Arizona, 
No particular experience is outlined as a requirement. The Taiwan Semiconductor Factory work schedule is a mix of nights, days, two on and two off, four on and three off, and similar patterns. Accommodation, travel subsidies, and so on would be provided. The only requirement is a 6- to 12-month company training period in Taiwan. The decrease in the FCC General Mobile Radio Service radio license has been rumored for years. The FCC finally confirmed that the fee is officially now $35 for a 10-year license. The fee had been $70 for years. The FCC's various web pages have not been changed to reflect this, though. It is reported that people are having trouble logging into the FCC license fee payment webpage. One wonders how many people have skipped paying the license fee due to the difficulty of navigating the FCC's webpages. The website is not user-friendly. But it's official. Effective on April the 19th, the GMRS radio working at or over 2 watts require license, but it just got more affordable. The general mobile radio service that's called GMRS is a licensed radio service that uses channels around 462 megahertz and 467 megahertz. The most common use of GMRS channels is for short distance. Two-way voice communications using handheld radios mobile radios, and repeater systems. In 2017, the FCC expanded GMRS to allow short data messaging applications, including text messaging and GPS location information. A subset of GMRS is a term that most people are more familiar with, the family radio service, or some may refer to as the walkie-talkie. The family radio service is an improved walkie-talkie radio system authorized in the United States since 1996. This personal radio service uses channelized frequencies around 462 and 467 megahertz in the ultra-high frequency that's a UHF band. It does not suffer the interference effects found on citizens' band at 27 megahertz or the 49 megahertz band also used by cordless telephones toys, and baby monitors. FRS, that's a family radio service, uses frequency modulation, that's FM, instead of amplitude modulation, which is AM. Since the UHF band has different radio propagation characteristics, short-range use of FRS may be more predictable than the more powerful license-free radio operating in the high-frequency CB band. What are the differences between FRS and GMRS? GMRS and FRS are two similar types of handheld radios in the United States. How do they differ when choosing between GMRS or FRS radio? FRS, a family radio service, may be the most common radio in our life. It's designed for individuals in close range, easy to buy one with relatively inexpensive prices but you may find the talking range of FRS radio is limited. System is only allowed 0.5 watts of power, according to the FCC. Buildings, mountains, and trees would greatly interfere and reduce your talking quality and range. So when you're seeking at better stuff, you may see GMRS now on the market.
Well, what is that? General Mobile Radio Service is a more powerful main type of two-way radio on the United States. Unlike FRS, GMRS can be modified to 50 watts of power, although, in generally speaking, we use GMRS on 1 to 5 watts only, and it can catch a much stronger, further-ranging signal. The price now today for a GMRS radio is just slightly higher than the cost of a family radio service radio. FRS and GMRS share the channel 1 to 7. Both of them are only supposed to transmit at 0.5 watts on channel 8 to 14. The difference is that GMRS has eight designated channels, that's 15 to 22, within those frequencies that aren't available to the family radio service radios. For greater range, the GMRS units has a range of 1 to 2 miles, and the difference in unit cost of the GMRS unit today and the FRS unit today is nominal. The license cost of $35 for 10 years is really quite minimal. It probably costs the FCC more than the $35 to process a 10-year license. Many of us who use a cell phone would like to be able to record a conversation for a variety of reasons. And Google now has announced that they're killing third-party call recording applications starting May 11th. If you find a third-party call recording apps useful, or if you are a developer of such an app, well, there's bad news. Google is implementing a new policy that will eliminate the ability to function. For users, say goodbye to recording calls with third-party apps. For app developers who put in years of hard work, well, that's all going down the drain. As the name suggests, a call recording app is mobile application that allows you to record telephone conversations. The jury is split on whether call recording functionality in smartphones is a good thing or not. Google's new policy does not affect native call recording, that is to say, call recording apps that are pre-installed on Android phones. For example, Google Pixel, Zomi, and Techno smartphones have call recording functionality baked into their phone dialers, which are pre-installed in the operating system. These will continue to function. As such, if you need to record calls, you can purchase phones that have the features baked in. Of course, one of them happens to be the Google phone. Otherwise, you are out of luck starting May 11th, when Google's new policy will go into effect. With this new development, we might see a new flurry of activities by smartphone makers to add phone call recording functionality to their phone dialers in order to provide this functionality to their phone users. This is unless Google decides then to kill off native phone call recording functionality too. Of course, not on their units. What does short selling in the stock market have to do with technology? Well, first, what is short selling? Tesla is probably the best known electric vehicle company based in the United States and headed by Elon Musk. Short selling, a position is opened by borrowing shares of stock or other asset that the investor believes will decrease in value. The investor then sells these borrowed shares to buyers willing to pay the market price. Before the borrowed shares must be returned, 
the trader is betting that the price will continue to decline and they can purchase them at a lower price. The risk of loss on the short sale is theoretically unlimited since the price of any asset can climb to infinity. What does short selling in the stock market have to do with technology? A leaked chat between Musk and Gates seems to suggest that Bill Gates has shorted Tesla stock by half a billion dollars. Elon Musk has confirmed that Bill Gates has a half a billion dollar short position against Tesla. Tesla is probably the best known electric vehicle company based in the United States and headed by Elon Musk. Elon Musk says he confronted Bill Gates about shorting Tesla. In a tweet last Friday, the Tesla CEO admitted that he asked Gates if he was short-selling shares of the electric car company. When investors short the stock, they're betting that the price of the asset will fall, meaning that the value of the company is going to go down. In a tweet on Friday, the Tesla CEO admitted that he asked Gates if he was short-selling shares of the electric car maker, and when investors short a stock, they're betting the price of the asset will fall. Elon Musk said in a tweet, I heard from multiple people at a TED conference that Gates still had half a billion dollars shorted against Tesla, which is why I asked him. So it's not exactly top secret. He was responding to a Twitter user's question on a supposed text conversation between the two billionaires whether or not it was real. The Tesla chief's response was, yeah, I didn't leak it to the New York Times. They must have gotten it through friends of friends. Elon Musk also seems, well, a little upset by Bill Gates' maneuver, who have earlier criticized Tesla and electric cars as detrimental to climate change. In the text exchange, which couldn't be independently confirmed, Musk asked Gates, do you still have a half a billion dollar shorted position against Tesla? To which Gates replied, sorry to say I haven't closed it out. I would like to discuss philanthropy positions with you, however. Musk shot back, sorry, I can't take your philanthropy on climate change seriously when you have a massive short position against Tesla, the company doing the most to solve climate change. Bill Gates told New York Times opinion writer Kara Swisher last year, it's important to say that what Elon did with Tesla is one of the greatest contributions to climate change anyone's ever made. And you know, underestimating Elon is not a good idea. But he went on to add that what Tesla was doing was easy stuff, like passenger cars. Bill Gates emphasized the need to make a greater impact on climate change by tackling other industries. We're basically not doing enough on the hard stuff. Steel, cement, meat, he said at the time. And sadly, the things that people think about, the electricity, passenger cars, are only a third of the problem. So we have to work on the two-thirds. If all you do is to pay attention is those short-term metrics, not the green premiums across the board, then you'll miss out on what is the longest lead time, which is the hard stuff. Elon Musk responded in the tweet, My conversations with Bill Gates have been underwhelming, to be honest. When Bill Gates was asked about comments whether he was short Tesla, his response was, I don't talk about my investments, but I think he should be very proud of what he's done. In a Bloomberg interview back in February 2021, Bill Gates said that he wished he had been more on the long side of Tesla when asked about Musk's claims. Confirming the leaked chats to be genuine, 
Elon Musk stated that he didn't leak it to the New York Times. Musk said that this is not exactly top secret in the industry. Bill Gates is also critical of Bitcoins, of which Musk is an avid proponent. So to recap, the short of it is that Bill Gates does not think that electric cars is the big part of the problem with climate change. He says it's steel, cement, and meat. I don't know if he's going to be able to get everyone to stop eating meat. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. Addressing more rapid-fire complaints about IT. Part 2 of 2. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to talk about business. It's time to discuss the workplace and IT. And I have some more rapid-fire complaints about IT departments and some of my thoughts on them. One of them, arrogance of the IT department. I will tell you, I've seen this time and time again. I see a lot of people complaining about the arrogance. I have also seen the arrogance. I have seen a lot of people who were very, very just like, what are you doing? These people are not here to do your bidding. You're here to do their bidding. You're here to help them. I have a different philosophy. I have a different approach, and maybe that's what has led me to a lot of personal success in the work environment. I like the idea of keeping people Uh, the customer service aspect. I I like them happy. And yes, there are going to be times where I'm going to be the bearer of bad news and I'm going to try and break it as nicely as I can. And sometimes I do forget and I say, oh, hey, you can't do this. And I forget, hey, um, there's a reason why we can't do this and, and all of that. But there's there is a certain level of arrogance. And part of this comes from I know more about computers than you do, and that's because I am socially awkward and I, you know, I'm only thinking about myself and not others. In my world, I've always tried to do my best to think more about others, to think more of others, to put myself into the same position that so many other people uh, are going through right now. Or remember when I was in their position. So there's a lot of that. There's a lot of balance there. And one of the things, if you're dealing with somebody who's arrogant, you know, go for this. Please put yourself in my shoes. I'm struggling with this problem. Can you help me? And appeal to their, their side of being able to help you versus being able to denigrate you. Another rapid-fire complaint about IT departments is the restricted web access. I can't go to this website, and I want to go to this website. That website is a time waster, or it's a bandwidth waster. Uh, You know, when we started to shift... Uh, over to uh, over to this whole idea of work from home. We, we started going through COVID and one of the sites that they blocked or is in, just as an example was YouTube. Why did they block YouTube? Because the path for people to watch YouTube, in the office, originally you would sit at your desk. The information would come in from 
YouTube, very high bandwidth, very high volume coming in. It would go through the pipeline and it would go to your desk. And that was it. But now, when we're in this work from home situation, it has to come in through the firewall. It gets processed. It then has to go in through the network, through the bandwidth. Then it has to be sent over to your home. So we're doubling the amount of bandwidth that that the office has to deal with. But there's something more, too. And that is because it has to be encrypted. The firewalls have to be upgraded. So, yes, they're going to lock down unessential websites. They're going to lock us out of certain things, certain places that we might want to go. And then, of course, there's always the person who spoils it for a lot of people. And I remember a previous company I worked for where there was a guy who... We we had to lock down the company to prevent a certain amount of, we'll just say, really inappropriate web activities. We locked down the company more and then more, and then we realized, okay, we're hurting ourselves. Let's just lock him down. So, yeah, there's going to be restricted web access. And it's the company wanting you to be working on company items, not on personal items. The last item I'm going to cover here today is the BYOD, bring your own device lockout. Now, I'm not sure if this is a big issue anymore, but it it does rise up in a number of different areas. And, um, you know, over the years, yes, we have locked out personal devices. We have said no more. But we've slowly allowed them back in. We've slowly allowed things to change and adapt to the needs of the company. For instance, we used to lock out personal cell phones. I I remember that I had to carry my own iPhone as well as a company iPhone. And it was sometimes confusing because they both were very similar. Now, as time went on... Well, now I can get my personal information. I, as a matter of fact, I have on my own iPhone, I have many programs that are from the office. And they've shifted because now they're supporting the programs, not my iPhone. And that was a struggle we had before, a matter of, oh, we're going to have to support your iPhone if we're also supporting this app. No, they separated those. So, yes. My two-factor authentication through my through my iPhone. My uh, communicating the instant messaging through my iPhone. I can get my email on my iPhone. I can do a number of different things on my, yes. Well, I, I should say smartphone. I just happen to have an iPhone, but uh, it could easily be an Android phone. It doesn't matter. But you should ask. You should see if there is a way to convert from a company-carried tech device to a personal one, especially if you have to carry both. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Twitter has a big problem, but can it be fixed? For one thing, conservative complaints of Twitter censorship are typically met with the progressive response that social media is not a true public town square with equal access, but a private company that can write and enforce its own rules and enforce them as they please. 
the way one would in one's living room, sure enough from a legal standpoint. And yet, many liberals and progressives confirm that they do in fact see the company as playing an immensely important public role in determining the scope of mainstream conversation. If Twitter has that kind of importance, then it is less a living room than the proverbial town square as Musk has recently asserted. This doesn't mean that Twitter management should be legally bound by First Amendment speech protections. It does mean that people concerned about preserving a truly liberal social and political culture have good reasons to push back if Twitter's policies curb legitimate speech or put an ideological thumb on the scale. The lack of transparency in Twitter's enforcement of its rules, including bans and tweet removals, and in the functioning of Twitter algorithms that boost certain stories and hashtags and hide others, readily lends itself to claims of bias. This is less about intentional discrimination than about instinctive, progressive biases of many of the top staff at Twitter. However noble the intent, this is a prescription for nannyism at best, especially since progressive discourse defines harm very broadly and political bias at worst. Where does Musk come in? His broad libertarianism and his criticism of Twitter for de facto bias has inspired fears that he would turn Twitter into a free-for-all. In his TED Talk, Musk confirmed that he would err on the side of more speech as long as it is not legally prohibited. Whether that means Musk Twitter would allow all constitutionally protected speech, that is to say, pretty much everything except for threats and libel, is unclear. However, a couple of his suggestions, making the algorithm Twitter uses to boost and de-boost content transparent and relying on timeouts more than permanent bans, seems constructive. One potentially good lesson from the Musk Twitter saga would be to prompt a rethinking of the extent to which we have made Twitter our town square. Part of Twitter's outsized importance is that it's the platform of choice for media and for political activists. It can be a useful tool for news gathering and discussion. The Twitter Battle Saga Musk and Dorsey form unexpected alliance. Two billionaires who admire each other have launched separate attacks against the board of Twitter. One of them co-founded the site. The other wants to buy it. They have both gone through difficult times when they headed their respective companies, and it is in these times that each have been able to count on the support of the other. Dorsey was one of the few CEOs to back Musk amid strained relations with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Now, Musk and Dorsey seem to have a common target, Twitter's board. Dorsey is a member of the board until May. He had indicated last November that he is giving up his seat, so it's uncertain whether he has taken part in board meetings since November. It all started on April 4th when Musk disclosed that he had a 9.2% stake in Twitter, making him one of the biggest shareholders. Musk explained that he wanted to make significant changes to the platform. Former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey criticized the company's board in a series of tweets on Sunday. Dorsey still sits on the Twitter board, but has planned to leave once his term expires at the 2022 meeting of shareholders, which is scheduled for late May. 
Former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey criticized the company's board in a series of tweets on Sunday as the group is now tasked with evaluating a takeover bid from billionaire Elon Musk. The board is currently considering Musk's $43 billion offer to buy the company and take it private. Dorsey recently noted that he ended up with very little of the company because it took many of his shares when he was fired back in 2008. He said he also gave 1% of the company back to employees in 2015. Still, Dorsey remains the largest insider stakeholder of the company after Musk's 9.1% with about 2.25% of shares. After that, Silver Lake, whose CEO is a Twitter board member, owns 0.26%, according to FactSet. The Vanguard Group is the largest institutional holder with 10.29% stake in the company, also according to FactSet. Since then, Musk has launched a campaign on social media to win public support for his bid, and Musk and Dorsey have just opened another front, denouncing the board, claiming it is inept. To look into the history of Twitter's board, it is intriguing to witness its early beginnings, mired in plots and coups, and particularly amongst Twitter's founding members. This could be made into a Hollywood movie thriller one day. Dorsey denounced what he called the Twitter's board's dysfunction. It's inconsistently been the dysfunction of the company. The Ford Twitter CEO said, A user then asked him if he was allowed to say so since he's still officially a board member. Dorsey replied, no. Dorsey also endorsed a post quoting venture capitalists saying Silicon Valley's proverb that good boards don't create good companies, but a bad board will kill a company every time. For his part, Musk has indicated that if he takes control of Twitter, board members would receive compensation equal to zero. Board salary would be zero if my bid succeeds, he says. So that's $3 million of savings right there. He said that the interest of the board was not aligned with those of the shareholders since the directors, except for Dorsey, did not hold Twitter shares. With Jack Dorsey departing, the Twitter board collectively owns almost no shares. Objectively, their economic interests are simply not aligned with shareholders, Elon Musk said. Pressuring the board, that's the effort of two billionaires who have always presented themselves as two outsiders of Silicon Valley and of the system they have decided to disrupt. After Twitter's board on Friday moved to shore up defenses against Elon Musk's hostile takeover bid, Musk has sought to use the company's platform against it, launching a series of critical tweets at the board this weekend. These messages characterize the directors as irresponsible for turning away his overtures. What's more, unusual is who else was lobbying complaints about Twitter through tweets. Jack Dorsey, the Twitter co-founder who left as CEO only in November and remains a board member until next month. Dorsey labeled the board as consistently the dysfunction of the company and said he agreed with the idea that a badly run board can literally make a billion dollars in value disappear. Musk worked to paint the board as out of touch with the company's best interests by noting that their small holdings in Twitter stock, with Jack departing, the Twitter board collectively owns almost no shares. Musk wrote, Objectively, their economic interests are simply not aligned with shareholders. 
Musk, the Tesla CEO, has offered to buy Twitter for $54.20 a share and approximately $43 billion valuation on the company. Musk has said he won't make another one, though it's entirely possible the unpredictable electric car billionaire may change his mind. As for Twitter, it may elect to find a buy it sees as more suitable. Dorsey's beef with the Twitter board goes back to Twitter's start. In 2008, it sided with co-founder Ev Williams, firing Dorsey and installing Williams himself as CEO. During another boardroom coup in 2010, Williams was replaced by then-Chief Operating Officer Dick Costello. Five years later, with Twitter stock sagging, Costello left and Dorsey came back. The Twitter saga has come to a conclusion. This Monday afternoon, Twitter announced that it had entered into a definitive agreement to be acquired by Elon Musk in a transaction value at about $44 billion. Once the transaction is complete, Twitter will become a privately held company. In an all-staff meeting on Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific time, Parag Agrawal, who is the CEO of Twitter, announced that he will remain Twitter CEO at least for the next six months until the deal with Musk closes. Further, Agrawal also announced at the meeting that there would be no layoffs at this time. Agrawal's closing statement was, we don't have all the answers. This is a period of uncertainty. Musk's acquisition also means Twitter will likely no longer be governed by its existing board and will no longer be publicly traded. Twitter needs to be transformed as a private company, Musk previously said in an SEC filing. Musk is both a frequent user of Twitter and one of its most vocal critics. On March the 25th, Musk tweeted that free speech is essential to a functioning democracy, along with a yes or no poll asking his followers if they believe Twitter rigorously adheres to this principle. In a second tweet, he hinted at big intentions and stated the consequences of this poll will be important. Please vote carefully, and with 2 million votes, the final poll result was 70.4% no to 29.6% yes. A day later, in two more tweets, Musk said given that Twitter serves as the de facto public town square, failing to adhere to free speech principles fundamentally undermines democracy. What should be done? And is a new platform needed? On April the 4th, Elon Musk announced that he had purchased 9.2% of Twitter's stock shares, becoming the single large stakeholder in the company. He also tweeted out another yes or no poll the same day, asking followers, do you want an edit button? Though Musk actually purchased the stock on March the 24th, He didn't file the required SEC paperwork, declaring the acquisition until 10 days later. The next day, April 5th, Twitter CEO Parag Rawal announced that Musk would be appointed to the social media company's board of directors. Backlash from Twitter's employees, as well as lots of other people on the internet, prompted the platform to host an AMA, which is short for Ask Me Anything, with Elon Musk. And just days later, on April the 11th, the deal fell through. Musk ended up 
not joining Twitter's board, probably, after learning that become a board member, he would be prevented from acquiring more than 14.9% stake in the company. Once it became clear that he would no longer become a Twitter board member, Agrawal said, I believe this is for the best, in a statement directed to the rest of the board. Then on April the 13th, Musk filed paperwork with the SEC declaring his intention to buy 100% of Twitter at $52.40 per share in cash. He threatened that if his offer was not accepted, he would offload all of his 9.2% stake, effectively crashing the company's stock. My offer is my best and final offer, and if it is not accepted, I would need to reconsider my position as a shareholder, he said in Exhibit B of the SEC filing. Twitter has extraordinary potential, and I will unlock it, he said. Following that announcement, Twitter's board instituted a poison pill rights plan on April the 15th. The plan made it so that if any one person were to acquire 15% or more of the company, other shareholders could then buy additional shares of the stock at a discount. But nonetheless, Musk persisted. Twitter's board entered in negotiations with Musk on April the 24th. That was Sunday. Around noon this Monday, Meet tweeted, I hope that even my worst critics remain on Twitter because that is what free speech means. What is likely to change once Elon Musk owns Twitter? In the immediate, Twitter Inc. is in code-free freeze, not allowing product or platform updates unless business critical. This means that company employees are, for the time being, unable to change anything about the site without approval from a vice president. The move is a protective one meant to prevent angry workers from going rogue. Longer term, although the edit button tweet and Musk's emphasis on unmoderated free speech hint at his ideal Twitterverse, it's unknown exactly how the platform might change under his tutelage. In the statement announcing the acquisition, Musk reiterated lots of his previously tweeted comments and said, free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy and Twitter is the digital town square, where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated. He said that he wanted to make Twitter better than ever by enhancing the product with new features, making the algorithms open source to increase trust, defeating the same bots, and authenticating all humans. Musk has repeatedly identified those spam bots as one of his focuses for the company. According to a poll released on April the 5th by market research firm Ipsos, 40% of the self-reported heavy Twitter users said they believe Musk's purchase of the platform will cause Twitter to allow greater free speech, and 40% thought it would improve the quality of discussion on the platform. Monday's agreement says that an unnamed entity wholly owned by Elon Musk will pay approximately $44 billion dollars. Under the terms of the deal, Twitter stockholders will receive $54.20 in cash for each share of Twitter common stock that they own upon closing of the proposed transaction. The purchase price represents 38% premium to Twitter's closing stock price on April 1, 2022, which was the last trading day before Elon Musk disclosed his approximately 9.2% stake in Twitter. 
In the United States, we have the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peacefully to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. But the laws around the world are not the same for the same subject matters. Brussels has warned Elon Musk that Twitter must comply with the EU's new digital rules under his ownership or risk hefty fines or even a ban, setting the stage for a global regulatory battle over the future of the social media platform. Thierry Breton, the EU's commissioner for the internal market, told the Financial Times that Elon Musk must follow rules on moderating illegal and harmful content online after Twitter accepted the billionaire's $44 billion takeover offer. That is not free speech. Content moderation is not free speech. Breton said, We welcome everyone. We are open, but on our conditions. At least we know what to tell him. Elon, they are rules. You are welcome, but these are our rules. It's not your rules which will apply here. Musk take private deal for Twitter could transform the Tesla chief executive who has used the platform to attack regulators and critics into a social media baron given that millions of people rely on the San Francisco-based platform for news. He said on Monday that free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy and described Twitter as the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated. The comments from Breton, one of Europe's most influential digital regulators, come just days after Brussels signed off on a new piece of legislation that will force big tech to more aggressively police content online. In pitching his offer for Twitter, Musk outlined plans to loosen the social media's platform's content moderation policies, describing himself as a free speech absolutist. But Breton said he wanted to offer a reality check to Musk's plan for less stringent moderation. The EU commissioner, who was key in negotiating the new Digital Services Act, warned that a lack of compliance from Twitter risked a ban for the platform in Europe. He said anyone who wants to benefit from this market will have to fulfill our rules. The board of Twitter will have to make sure that if it operates in Europe, it will have to fulfill the obligations, including moderation, open algorithms, freedom of speech, transparency in rules, obligations to comply with our own rules for hate speech, revenge porn, and harassment. If Twitter does not comply with our law, there are sanctions, 6% of the revenue, and if they continue, banned from operating in Europe, he added. The Digital Services Act forces the likes of Twitter to disclose to regulators how they are tackling content such as disinformation and war propaganda. The groundbreaking rules are part of a bigger push by Brussels to curb the power of large online platforms, including Facebook and Google. Last month, the EU also unveiled the Digital Markets Act, aimed at curbing the power of big tech, including a ban on platforms promoting their own services over those of rivals. So the question I ask is, if there is to be compliance with moderation of what is on Twitter, 
who is a judge of that, and who is to determine that he or she is not biased? Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Updates on the car tech and experience. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, uh, it was just a couple of weeks ago, you were talking about gloves in the glove compartment. And that reminded me of a segment, I don't know, probably three months ago, somewhere in there, where we were talking about, you got in a car accident, you, you, you were getting, you were in the process of getting a brand new Subaru and all of the technology that was coming with that. I also know your wife also now has a, a, a brand new car. So there's a lot that's going on here. Let's let's dive into the technology. Uh, kind of um, what is the experience like now with the new car? Ladies and gentlemen, that was Benjamin Rockwell, who can't change a tire unless it really wants to change. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the new car is fantastic. Yeah. It is, you know, it. I'm not going to play Tesla with it. It's not trying to, you know, I don't say take me to lunch and it takes me to lunch. Yeah. I, I I, can watch the lane lines on the dashboard. Mm-hmm. It can mm-hmm. steer me on a curve if I've set it up to let that happen. Automating the high beams. I have to tell you, just just last night, I wondered why that wasn't working. I took a look and it's because the headlight wasn't set to auto. Moved it to auto. The high beams are automated mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Got mm-hmm. to love that. So steering braking when it's appropriate, warning me when I'm about to hit something. You know, all of a sudden a car is slow in turning and it tells me there's an obstacle on the road. I think that's a great name for those drivers. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's not really self-driving, like, as no. you were mentioning, but it, but it is definitely adding in a lot of those uh, tech features to keep you safe. I love that. Now, Subaru has a thing called EyeSight, which is stereo cameras up at the top of the uh, windshield and the windshield mm-hmm. on the Forester, uh, the, my, my wife's XV Crosstrek, 2022 XV Crosstrek also has them. But the windshield on the Forester is higher. I can wear my hat in there and not have it brush off at the door. I mean, it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm loving that yes. about it. Yes, Foresters um, are quite tall. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They, they finally uh, decided why should anyone have to see over the top of us? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and anyway, uh, those cameras, the cameras in the back, the radars, the ultrasonics, all of that provide a, a, a kind of uh, circle of awareness. Mm-hmm, if somebody mm-hmm. is coming up in our blind spot, their mirror flashes. If they're coming up too close to me, I get a dashboard warning and it beeps. If I'm coming up too close to them, it's the same thing. If the road is curving and it loses a sideline, I get a warning. If the road is icy, it warns me about it. Mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. industry calls it ADAS, uh, Adra- Adaptive Driving Automation System, I think it's called. Okay. I don't care about the automation. I don't care about it. What I care about is I'm getting older. Mm-hmm. I'm still seeing okay, but not always. Moving my neck around to look, you know, 270 degrees behind me always hurt when my neck broke and my head fell off. But right now, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's 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 manageable. It's a more comfortable ride in every sense. Both, you know, you still get a communication of the road. You know what your tires are feeling. Mm-hmm, yeah, but it, yeah. it's, it's, it's not uncomfortable. The seat is fabulous. But this isn't about being... 
a fanboy of, of Subaru. This is about the tech. And I've seen it in so many other cars, including sure. cars I've rented recently. Sure. Let, know, me, let me ask you. Yeah. And, and I haven't uh, I have not had a chance to even ride in a Tesla. Have you had a chance? Uh, no, I've been offered the chance, but uh, uh, with uh, the current pandemic, not uh, sure. and not yet gone. When when those opportunities came around, uh, I have not yet been quite able to avail myself. Sure, I, I hear actually. You mentioned the comfort of the Subaru, yeah, and 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 there's a lot of a lot of i'll say anecdotal comments in regards to you know the tesla at, uh, you know the the high end teslas at at 100,000 plus don't feel like $100,000 cars they feel like $30,000 cars they're they're not really comfortable well you really just have kind of a soft seat in a large uh, an enormous battery compartment <laughs> yeah i uh, so uh, so with your subaru uh, you're enjoying the the tech the the new uh, so you didn't have uh android uh connectivity before i trust you've got it now i've got it now and and i can tell you there's always been a way in my cars to put a phone on the dash yeah some of them some of them not pretty but uh what i <laughs> Super glue and in, in Lego pieces. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I get it. No, no. Give me some credit. Uh, Velcro. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so the experience yeah. is going well. And what about, what about for your wife? How's the experience, the tech experience for when her? When she started, she was afraid to get into the car because she was reading the manual and, you know, you got a quarter page to explain what it does and a page and a half of do not use if this happens. And in case of that, ignore this and uh, turn it off if this and that, and she, I'm afraid I don't know when to use it. I said, don't mm -hmm. worry about it. Mm -hmm. There's never going to be a time it fails. If it turns itself off, you're not going to get it anyway. Mm -hmm. Just just go with it. And where it gives you good advice, pay attention. Where it doesn't give you any advice, you're on your own like you were before. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how my wife wound up 300 miles away from where she was going. <laughs> Navigation. It, yeah. By the way, neither car, we didn't take the uh built-in navigation option yeah we're we're doing all of that through android auto and that's that's actually yeah i i think the in-car navigation is going to go away i think in most cars in the next uh, three to five years i i would There's, hope so but the people who sell that to the car makers are doing some incentivizing to try to get it to stay because when they sell the map a year that that turns crazy yeah yeah. Oh, I I know. I'm the map a year for my car is, ouch. Yeah. Yeah. I, Blew me I, away. I by the way, this has a CD player. A CD player. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In this day CD. and age, yeah, yeah. Find the CDs. Thank you, Ben, and thank you, Marty. The forty sixth annual Trenton Computer Festival was held Saturday, March the nineteenth. There were over 50 talks on 10 concurrent tracks. All the sessions were recorded. They are now available and free for download at tcf-nj.org and the main page has hyperlinks that will direct you to the portal site. Public Service Announcements Computer Club Meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State Region Since most club meetings are online, you are most welcome to attend any of the online meetings. Log on to the club website for more information 
on remote meeting ID. The Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, April the 28th. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Topic of presentation is AI and our human future. It's a virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is bcug.com. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, May the 6th. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. The Westchester PC Users Group will have a presentation, Podcasting with Robert Miller. Thursday, May the 5th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And their website is wpcug.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, May the 6th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, May the 10th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. And they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. And to confirm, call 347-278-7320. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again. Same time, same station next week. And may the fourth be with you.